Every podcast has its co-presenter. In Suffolk, Rodney Marshall. Mid Wales, Rick Davy. ITC Entertain the World also has its own. A messy job? Well, that's when they usually call on me. Oh yes, my name is Wiseman. Jazz Wiseman. Thanks for joining us for this next episode of ITC Entertain the World. Today I'm joined, as per usual, by Rodney Marshall. I'm also joined today by Rick Davey, who's in mid-Wales. Rick, hi. Hi, Jazz. Good to speak to you. Hi. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, Rick? Um, yep. Just a bit about your Magoon background and stuff. Yep, sure. No problem. So since oh, 2003, I've run a website called The Unmutual Website, which deals with basically the career of Patrick McGowan, primarily the prisoner, but also looks at Danger Man as well. Um, I authored the book, uh, The Prisoner, The Essential Guide, and co-authored a book called George Markstein and the Prisoner, which looked at George Markstein's life and career. I also co-edited the book Playboy Spies and Private Eyes, which is a book all about ITC shows, which your good self obviously contributed to. And mm-hmm. um, uh, the last couple of years, I've organised ITC celebration events at Elstree Studios, celebrating all these great shows that you talk about on these podcasts. Brilliant. Thanks ever so much. So, I mean, we should start really with Danger Man, the half-hour series that we're going to be talking about today. Now, for me personally, this is a great show, but it's also a landmark series, I think, in ITC's development, because if we think back to 1955, when ITC first launched and ITV launched as well, ITC started with historical dramas. They made a run of these which we all know about. So there is The Adventures of Robin Hood, Sir Lancelot, The Buccaneers. We all know these shows, but they're predominantly family orientated. Then ITC, towards the end of the 50s, started looking at more contemporary issues. The main one that we should talk about here quickly is H.G. Wells' Invisible Man, because Ralph Smart was involved with that. And obviously Ralph Smart went on to Danger Man. I'm not going to say too much here because we're going to talk about the origins of the show. But I just wanted to make that important point for our listeners that this is really where ITC starts moving in the direction that lots of people associate with the company. So we're talking about spies, playboys, private eyes, etc., and Cold War drama. Rodney, I know for a fact that your dad was involved in the very early stages of Danger Man, wasn't he? He was. I didn't actually realise until a few weeks ago when a a friend of mine in Paris sent me an article from the Primetime magazine uh, in 1987. And uh, there was a long article in there covering my dad's career. And he talks at the beginning, he was working for Associated British Pictures at Elstree uh, for a princely sum of £10 a week. And for that, he was working on scripts and storylines. And obviously, he needed a little bit more money. And so he sort of, um, he did a bit of sort of nighttime work for an American group called Ziv, who I'd never heard of, but I've looked them up and they were a massive company in America at the time making American series. Anyway, uh, when the studios found out that he was sort of um, doing a little bit of extra work on the side, it didn't go down well. So he crossed the road to work for Ralph Smart at ATV. Uh, While there, he worked on three series, William Tell, The Invisible Man, and the preparations for a new series, which at that time, he says, was called James Bond. And it struck me as quite interesting that 
you've got those three series being sort of worked on at the same time. The past, you know, the swashbuckling William Tell, the present, the invisible man, and then, of course, what will become eventually Lone Wolf and then Danger Man uh, as well. And, and I think probably the invisible man is almost, I think Robert Sellers says it's the metaphorical bridge, isn't it, between those swashbucklers and the modern spy series secret agent, which, as you've already said, is what a lot of people associate ITC with. Yes, it is that stepping stone, really, H.G. Wells, because um, it was a family-orientated show, a bit like The Swashbucklers. But when we get to Danger Man, which, as you pointed out there, started out as uh, James Bond for the small screen, and then after Fleming left, it became Lone Wolf as the working title, and then eventually Danger Man, the half-hour series that we are familiar with now. So it is that important stepping stone, H.G. Wells' Invisible Man. And I I go back to it because of Ralph Smart. Now, your dad obviously worked with Ralph Smart. Ralph Smart was an Australian who was born in London, of all things, who uh, ended up working for Lou on lots of these swashbuckling shows. But there's an interview on one of the DVD box sets I did where he said he kind of got fed up with historical dramas and wanted to work in a more contemporary world, you know, present day stories. And H.G. Wells was that first sort of stepping stone into that contemporary world for Ralph. But again, like I said earlier, it was uh, family orientated, a little bit sci-fi, whereas Danger Man was much more cutting edge, hard, gritty, the grit that we were talking about in one of our last episodes about Gideon's Way, there's grit in Danger Man as well, and particularly film noir techniques. So early days, Danger Man, we know that Fleming was there, he moved on, it became Lone Wolf, and then after Lone Wolf was dropped as a work entitled Danger Man itself. So what's interesting here as well is it's still that 25-minute, half-hour format I just wondered if we could go into the strengths and weaknesses of that. And Rodney, you could tell me what you think. Well, I remember years ago asking my dad and he said to me, those sort of half hour shows, it's almost like a three act play where you've got to throw away the first act. Funny that that, that might, might sound. And I guess that's one of the reasons why we have those John Drake commentaries, you know, that the, the often cover the first five or ten minutes of those episodes. It's almost a shorthand because you haven't got that much time. I, I mean, I think one of the great strengths is I, I make the comparison between poetry and prose. In poetry, it's condensed. Every word counts. And I think on those 25-minute format, Danger Man, there is no room for loose baggage. You can't have any sort of scenes that are a little bit flabby. And so I think if the script writer gets it right, you've got something extremely exciting and taut. If he gets it wrong, then obviously the viewer is left feeling less than satisfied. So I think it does put an enormous amount of pressure on the script. With those scripts, we should point out that Ralph Smart was involved with 26 of those episodes, of those 39 episodes, there were 39 episodes made in this series. 26 he wrote or co-wrote so that's two-thirds of the series he really did set the mark for this with the standard of writing he did bring in some great writers a couple in particular I want to talk about Ian Stewart Black who became associate producer 
and Joe Isinger. And both of these writers were victims of the McCarthy witch hunt in the US. So we gained from their crackdown on writers and directors and actors who were probably considered a bit left field. And Lou picked up on all those people, didn't he? And they all had great experience in film and some in television. And that's really as well another important point about Danger Man, but also the ITC shows up until that point. He really didn't care about those politics or whatever. He just wanted to make the shows. And he saw those people as people who could write, direct, act, whatever, and thought, right, well, I don't care if you've been blacklisted in America. I'm going to use you. And I think that's very forward thinking of him. Yeah, I think so. And I I think also he was looking at what America was creating at that time. You've got shows like Naked City, which started off as Half Hour. You've got Peter Gunn, which uh, was Half Hour. And he looked at the popularity of those shows and I think thought, yeah, we can do something contemporary. I mean, I threw Peter Gunn at you the other day and said, obviously, as soon as Peter Gunn was over... Lou Grade had him over at ITC and even had the same person, Henry Mancini, do the theme music for the show. He he worked on as a sort of Craig Stevens as a photographer, isn't he, in the ITC show? Yeah, Man of the World. And I think he was looking at what was happening in America, what was going on in a way of series that, that were interesting contemporary themes. And I'm sure the popularity of a show like Peter Gunn would have given Lou Grade that confidence. Yeah, okay, we can do that. Yeah, and very forward thinking again with him, with all his shows being shot on 35mm film. So he knew that he could sell directly into the States and other markets, including Australia and France, Germany, Spain, pretty much anywhere in the world. If you can do it on 35 millimeter film, it's a standard. We can get it there. Did you want to add anything about Ian Stewart Black? My understanding is he came on literally as Ian Fleming left. So whether it was a disagreement about financial terms or or the way the show was going. But of course, there is this wonderful irony that what was going to be, as you said earlier, Bond for the small screen ends up, of course, becoming anti-Bond. Now, I don't know whether he had any say in that move. Obviously, with Patrick McGowan, he was never going to play Bond. It is intriguing, that whole history and prehistory of the show, that what would have been, as my understanding, is the storyline was basically going to be this guy who carries a gun and will use it. And he ends up becoming quite the opposite. Absolutely. I mean, that's one of the main things about Danger Man in the half-hour episodes for me is the sort of lack of gun, lack of gadgets and use of brains when it comes to tricky situations. So I was just going to say, I think that is very much down to, to McGowan. I think he's on record in interviews. I don't have the quote to hand as to say when he arrived and saw the first script, he absolutely went into whoever's office it needed to be, whether it be Lou Grade or, 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 the, or Ralph Smart. And tell me, I said, you know, I am, when I'm on TV, I'm in a family's living room. We don't need to have violence. We don't need to have sex. We can portray these stories and this man but do it completely morally. We don't need to have me half-killing a man to show that I have got the better of him physically. We don't need to to show me being in bed with a woman, um, as as other shows maybe would have done at the time. 
And I think Pat was on record as saying very much that this was down to him because he was a guest in people's homes when he was on their television sets. Um, so I think it was completely down to him. Uh, you know, there are kind of these urban myths going around, oh, he would never kiss a woman on screen. He did actually kiss quite a few women on screen in shows in the 50s, shows like The Vise, and we did a BBC play uh, where we, we kissed a woman on screen, the, the film Gypsy and the Gentleman. He, he ravaged the actress down to the floor in that. Um, so it wasn't as though he was completely alien to the idea of being in something violent or, or being with a woman in, in a show. But he felt that you could tell these stories in a completely moral way. And in hindsight, I think he was absolutely right because that's so much the advantage of watching Danger Man over these other shows is that you're not expecting him to get the girl at the end of the show. It's quite clear that he's not going to do that. And I think that's to its advantage. A point you say there, which were, I, I just made a little note to myself when you were saying about that, about the violence, you're quite right. Because, for example, at the start of View from the Villa, there's a man sort of half beaten to death. Well, he is beaten to death. But that's not Magoon doing that violence. That, that's the baddies kind of thing. You're right. He doesn't need to do that violence himself, you know, and he doesn't need the gun and he doesn't need to necessarily get the girl. And I think that adds a lot to the series and the scripts, personally. It's another, another example of less is more as well. It's that Hitchcock idea of there's nothing frightening about the bang. It's the anticipation of the bang. And I think when you've only got 25 minutes to tell a story, you can actually have, you know, the sound in the background of perhaps someone being beaten, you know, etc. You don't actually have to show everything because you haven't got time to show everything. And I do think um, Rick's point is, is a great one that basically, you know, McGowan's moral code drives Drake's moral code, not vice versa, because clearly the original idea for the character was going to be far more traditional, not gumshoe, because he's not a private eye, but but that, as I say, as I said earlier, have, have gun, will use. And it becomes quite the opposite. I can only think of one episode off the top of my head where he ends up shooting someone and, and that's self-defense. You hardly ever see him using a gun in the show. That's because McGowan can drive the episode with his own performance. He doesn't need to have that, I'm now going to beat up the bad guy, although, of course, he, he does do that on, on, on occasion. And, or he doesn't need to, you need to watch me chase the woman now and I'm going to get her by the end of the episode. Because his performance is so enthralling, and he does steal pretty much every scene he's in of every episode because he's such a magnetic performer in that role, he doesn't need to go any further than that. And I think that's, again, another great advantage of the half-hour series is that, as you said earlier, it's incredibly fast-paced. There's not a wasted scene in, in very many episodes because the writing was so tight. But because his performance is almost like a, a constant drumbeat and you're always drawn to it, he doesn't need to do the throwaway stuff that we, we take for granted in all these other shows. Yeah, and interestingly, I've got a couple of quotes where one is from Burt Quook, who everyone knows as an actor, he said, I can't remember when I did this interview, I haven't dated it, which is rather annoying. I did it for the Danger Man part work that I wrote with a guy called Robert Fairclough. Um, and that came out in 2005, so it must have been pre-2005. But Burt Quook says, the whole series, Danger Man, was Patrick McGowan. He took over everything he did. It was like when I went to see Brand, I never noticed any of the other actors. It was just Patrick, and he was so powerful. And I've also got a quote from Peter Graham Scott. When we did the DVDs for the Australian market, we did some DVD audio commentaries. 
with um, Peter Graham Scott and Brian Clements. And Peter said something very similar. Patrick really was the driving force, I feel, in uh, Danger Man because he uh, had this tremendous drive. So every scene he appeared in, it would start with a punch and it'd keep going, you know, that was mm. the thing. And uh, that's what made them so interesting, actually, because the stories are, to be honest, uh, fairly straightforward, but he gave this uh, terrific drive to them. It made it all seem very urgent and very real somehow. So that's interesting that both an actor and a director who worked on this show are reinforcing what you're saying there, Rick. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it, it becomes very clear when you watch the series progress that he is Danger Man. If you take McGowan out of it, as other shows do, you know, they replace the lead actor or whatever, it, I don't think it could have worked with any other actor. It just would have been a completely different show and therefore not Danger Man. And it, it's totally McGowan that drives that performance, drives that character and therefore drives the show. And, and we said uh, a few days ago when the three of us were chatting, didn't we, that that there is a wonderful bit of serendipity about it because you could have easily ended up with a scenario where Roger Moore plays Danger Man. You've got John Drake as the saint. And in both cases, it would have been a disaster because uh, more and more Templar becomes Roger Moore and more and more Drake becomes Patrick McGowan. And I think that's the mark. They're two very different actors, two very different series, but at the same time, they're both shows which become dominated by the presence of this sort of protagonist actor who is the driving force behind it, I think. I think you've got to give a big thanks to, to Lou Grade for spotting that because McGowan at that point wasn't a big TV star. He hadn't had a series of his own before that. He'd done some guest spots on you know, some ITC shows like Sir Lancelot. He'd been in a few episodes of The Vice. He'd obviously done some, some big pictures like Old Drivers and so on. But really, he was more known for serious plays. You know, obviously, Brand on the, at the West End, and he'd done um, a few TV plays. And it was one of those plays that Lou Grade first saw him in. I think it was The Big Night, which is a Clifford Adept play. Um, I think screened uh, in 58. Uh, now, to see from a performance like that, which is kind of quite a heavy play, that this could be an action hero, I think is great. A great spot from Lou Gray to be able to find someone from that sort of genre and pick him out and say, I want him to be a leading man in a 25-minute, at that point, James Bond-esque type series. So I think we've got to say well done to, to Lou for spotting McGowan in, in probably an unlikely scenario. Yeah, I think there's a lot to be said for that, Rick, actually, because I don't think Lou Grade gets the credit he deserves for a lot of these programmes, whether that be simply agreeing to do the programme with a handshake and that's the deal, or like you say, finding the people who are going to be the main star of the programme, or finding great writers or people to come up with concepts i think you know a lot of the time people seem to think oh it's just another lou grade show and you know we could there's a formula to it and admittedly as the 60s went on and the sort of spy craze became a bit diluted some of those shows did kind of go a little bit that way but back in the very early days of itc the 50s and early 60s Probably up until they went to, into colour, to be honest. I think Lou was really at the forefront of finding these people and not really taking all the accolades for it. You know, he, like you say, he saw, saw McGowan. What uh, Lou Grade's throwing was a thing called The Big Knife. Um, 
uh, which uh, sadly doesn't exist anymore. Um, so we, we can't actually see what it was that, that Grade saw in him. What you were saying, Jazz, about Lou Grade is absolutely right. And also the speed with which he did things. A show which I liked a few years ago was Life on Mars. Life on Mars took 10 years to get the green light. Many years ago when my dad wrote a series set on the canals, Travelling Man, that took five years to, to get the green light. You know, as you said, you know, Lou Grade would shake hands. And, you know, in the case of Opposite the Prisoner, the story is 48 hours later, the money was in McGowan's bank account, ready to start the show. And I, I think the fact that I think everyone is fascinated by the financial side of Lou Grade. And I, I honestly believe his vision was a dual purpose one. Yes, of course, he wanted to export shows and make money, but he also had an artistic vision and he was interested in that. And there's no reason why it has to be one without the other. Uh, you know, without the exports, you're not going to get shows being made on 35 millimeter film like mini movies, are you? And so there has to be that side to it. <clears throat> there's always been a snobbery against the TV series. The TV serial or the one-off play, which, which doesn't really exist anymore, they were, being, they were seen as far better. The TV series was seen as sort of formulaic and each week it's just a sort of a, a new twist on a familiar theme i think one has to get past that snobbery as well and of course the second layer of of course this is itv which as we were chatting the other day was still seen as being slightly vulgar the black death as, as the head of bbc called itv mm. at one point i'd say a third level of snobbery as well is that it's actually television and television was considered the lowest form of entertainment at that time the bbc was very much like well, you know, stiff up a lip radio and a little bit of television and films were considered this amazing go to the cinema, see this Humphrey Bogart superstar, whereas television was seen as this sort of lowest form of... And well, look yeah. at the Radio Times. The Radio Times was basically radio with four pages of TV sort of shoved on the back. You know, I think that was the thinking still in the late 50s. I'd say even beyond the late 50s, personally, I'd say probably until about... 65 66 when we started making more kind of quirky interesting shows that television began and that does include some of the bbc as well as was being produced by itv i think that extended probably until yeah the mid 60s personally but anyway we sort of gone off topic a bit there which is really quite nice <laughs> going back to the half hour danger mans we should talk about the scripts and in particular, some of the stronger episodes we've made a list. Perhaps we should start really with View from the Villa, which is considered to be the pilot. I mean, I've watched all these so many times and I don't think there really is a pilot as such because I think you could watch virtually any of these episodes and see it as an introduction to Danger Man. As you rightly say, the narration at the beginning, not only the bit where he comes out of the building and explains who he is, a NATO operative, but also the, the little sort of couple of lines that explains the situation. You know, uh, a British agent had been murdered, say, in Germany. So I had to travel to Berlin to find out what was going on. I would say that although View from the Villa is seen as the first episode, it doesn't really matter if there's a pilot or not. Um, anyway, no, I, I don't think it's a, it's a, there really isn't a pilot, is there? There isn't the equivalent of Man from the Dead in Man in a Suitcase or something like that. Or Arrival from the Prisoner. You could watch any of them. Um, there is no suggestion that we're being introduced to a new character. You know, he he's comes in post-teaser as if he's been on the TV for a year, doesn't he? 
Yeah. So View from the Villa obviously has got the Port Merion footage, which was directed by John Schlesinger, who went on to do a number of great movies. I particularly like that because... I don't know, I just think it's a great little story and there's some wonderful directing in it. In particular, when I talk to people about Danger Man, about the film noir look of it, I always say to them they need to watch that scene from View from the Villa where Barbara Shelley has her back to the camera in a very darkly lit scene and then she turns around and slowly moves out of the dark to reveal herself. That piece of, I don't know how long it is, 25 seconds of film is so noir and it's absolutely brilliant and full credit to terry bishop who was a director on that scene on the whole yeah, episode and, and and once again you know we were saying um last week or the week before with with uh, gideon's way I, I described it as a bit of a janus series because it's got one head looking back and one forward there is still a, a noirish element to this I, I think that probably got watered down pre-production because if you look at what the original main titles were going to be it was drake coming out of a building as a shadow lighting a cigarette and suddenly his face is lit up and, and the show begins that's downplayed a bit when they sort of modernize uh, the opening part of it but i do think there is a uh, almost an element of a raymond chandler type feel about those commentaries at the beginning and i actually miss them in in the hour-long episodes i rather like that beginning because often he'd use quite a bit of dry humor uh, and again this is something people don't always associate with drake and mcgoohan i actually think he's very funny in the show I agree with you, and I also agree with you about the fact that they, there is this film noir quality, and I think it does go through the entire run of those half hours. I think the music adds a little bit to that, because the music, I think in the half hours compared to the hours, is a little bit slightly more basic. I don't know if there was less of an orchestra available to record the soundtrack for the half hours. Um, Jazz, I don't know whether you know a bit more about that, but the, the, the music's very noir. There's a lot of flute, there's a lot of, sort of basic instruments playing on their own with maybe just one beat behind it, which I think really adds to the kind of air of mystery um, about each of the episodes that you're getting. You're, you, you know, you're, you're aware of where Drake is, but you're not quite aware of exactly what's going to be happening next. And that, there's a little, you're right, there's a noir quality about that. I, I think that the music is darker um uh, when it comes to the hour ones i do like high wire or whatever it's called the, the theme tube for the hour ones but i do think they're a little bit more light-hearted almost and um, that those half hour ones that the music really does suit the sort of that film noir feel of a lot of the episodes it's very jazz oriented excuse the pun on the name there and quite laid back in some of its playing but the thing is those jazz musicians they're so brilliant and so tight in the way they play it. They can create that atmosphere so well. It's, it's fabulous music. It really is. And it's definitely a smaller orchestra. You can hear that there's... It's more like an expanded jazz band. I'd probably say that's it's probably an eight or 11-piece maximum orchestra listening to it. Great music, though. I love listening to all the little sort of alternate versions and stuff as well. So you get the about six different takes on the main theme ever so slightly different fantastic music and i think the music you're right it really does add so much to the um whole atmosphere of this show 
and don't also you, don't you think sorry i was going to say don't you think also that 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 sort of the images that come with that main theme tune they really suit the half hour episodes because he's in a rush he's coming out the building he gets in his car and quite a few times in in that original series he'll make a little comment like i've only got half an hour to get this done there is almost this feeling in those titles that it it fits in with that let's get on with it yeah and part of the obviously noir look that we're talking about well a lot of the noir look is obviously down to the lighting and when you watch the episodes some of the episodes are, are quite darkly lit which um, is obviously a noir trick as well. So I know that people in the press were getting quite excited um, and in the industry press as well were getting quite excited at the time about what Danger Man was doing in terms of the way it looked on screen. And I'm not talking about, say, the critics. I'm talking about people who worked within the industry, technicians, people who worked at things like Cine Weekly, they knew definitely that Danger Man was a huge step up in production, in writing, directing the actors compared to everything that ITC had done before. This was really like ITC had been to university and graduated with a first-class honours degree. Yeah, and uh, I think, again, I don't want to obviously downplay the role that all of the, the fabulous crew had on Danger Man. But again, I think a lot of this came from McGowan, and I've actually got a quote here from um, an actress, um, Angela Brown, who was the girl in the pink pyjamas in the episode of the same name. And um, yeah, when she was interviewed by Dave Jones in, I think, about 1997, um, she said the following, which follows on from what you just said. She says, I just adored him, and he was so kind to me. I was a kid. I was 21. And he took over the lighting, I remember. There was a scene where I had to be lying there, rescued from some terrible situation. I was lying there thinking, what a lovely man. And between takes, he was saying, get more light there, get more shadow there. He was actually lighting it at a time when he wasn't in charge of anything. He was just the actor. And I think that, that kind of absolutely you know, describes what you were just describing there, that there was a darkness about it. And I do wonder how much of that judging by that quote there, came from McGowan. And I think what's also interesting about that quote is that it dispels another myth that McGowan wasn't liked by his female co-stars. We've got one there saying that she was basically falling in love with him. Brilliant, yeah. I love that quote. I must admit, I, I don't recall ever hearing that one before. So it's really lovely to hear a new quote. I think you're right there, Rick, um, in terms of the lighting. Because obviously McGowan, I think, wanted to do everything with this show once it got going. As we know, he directed an episode vacation which is his directorial debut and i thought he handled that really quite well actually for his first go i think you're absolutely right jazz i think he does a great job on that episode i'd love to know whether he was pestering almost to to have a go at direction because he wanted so much more control than maybe what he what he was getting before that i think he does a great job i've got this wonderful quote here as well from the danger man itc publicity book that uh, ITC sent out in 1960. And some men are born to danger. Some have it thrust upon them. Others seek it. John Drake has danger hurled at him from all three sources. He has a spirit of adventure in his blood and danger is his livelihood. I just think that's absolutely great and real sort of like proper boy's own stuff. And here we go. This is going to be like a real great series. And I think that comes across in the episodes. I mean, you mentioned View from the Villa. If, if one views that as the first episode, um, which, which many often do, it is a great start. And it, it doesn't 
disappoint after that, does it? I mean, I know you've got your list of episodes there. So many of them are real, as you say, boys' own stuff, where you can... It's total escapism for the, for the viewer. You know, one week he's in Caracas, although it's always the studio, of course. The next week he's in, you know, southern Italy or whatever. And there is that escapism you can go with him, but there's also that gritty realism that you get at the same time. And not many series mix the two very well. They were either high camp or they were real gritty drama like Gideon's Way. I think Danger Man meets both aspects absolutely perfectly, especially in these half hours. Yeah, I mean, I think it's that, it is that perfect blend of style and substance because it is more stylized than a Gideon's Way, but there is more substance than there is with particularly the sort of late 60s ITC shows. I think here you've got grit, but you have also got a sort of a certain amount of glamour. And as I sort of very briefly said earlier, there is quite a bit of humour. I mean, in that first episode, View from the Villa, when he arrives at the sort of murder scene, and it's him who notices that there's a negligee on the bed in the next room, and he knows it doesn't belong to the wife. And the local police inspector says, this is Rome, Mr. Drake, not New England. And he quickly turns around with a smile and says, it happens in New England as well, Mr. Finch. And it's that lovely, lovely, slightly cynical, dry sense of humour. And that's something that I don't think he always gets enough credit for. Yeah, I think you're right there. He does give a chance to get some, not comedy into it, but a certain lightness to show that he can make a quip here and there, which I think is, it really adds to his, the whole sort of Drake character, makes him more rounded. Personally. No, I, think, I, I think so. I mean, if one is allowed to be a little bit critical, um, I would say I pers- because obviously a lot of the episodes see him go undercover, involving in a sort of impersonation. And that actually becomes quite a theme in quite a few series in the 60s of characters sort of going undercover. And I think the one time that I feel a little bit uneasy is when he goes undercover as this full-on sort of drunkard bore. And I, just occasionally I then feel it's a little bit OTT. He does that, I think, in The Blue Veil about slavery. And, and it's a good episode. But I do just think sometimes less is more with him. When he's going undercover as perhaps a slightly pompous journalist or something, I think you know, that, that it's very subjective, my opinion. But I, I do feel that he's better when he holds back a little bit. Yeah, I, I would agree with that as well, actually. I prefer View from the Villa Drake or Drake in, say, The Key, where he's not undercover, to the one you mentioned there where he is the sort of drunk. I get why they did that story, but I must admit I prefer the other Drakes I was talking about. I've got some notes here about Time to Kill. Now, when I did a commentary with Brian Clements, he claimed that that was going to be the pilot episode. But I liked Brian... I don't actually believe that. I got it down here in production order as the fourth episode. And Brian always used to change his stories about, you know, I was the writer of this and that. I mean, for years he told everyone he was the writer of the pilot episode of The Avengers, which actually he wasn't because Hot Snow was the pilot. He wrote episode two, as it states on the script, brought to book. 
But I will give him credit because a lot of the actual episodes he wrote were good stories. And I do like Time to Kill, where he's handcuffed to this lady called Lisa. It's a bit 39 Steps, probably, or a bit The Defiant Ones, which obviously was in the movies in 1958. And it's got Darren Nesbitt in it as this assassin. And there's quite a nice bit of location footage because, we, again, we haven't really spoken about the location filming in this series. And and that's an episode that's almost all out on location, isn't it? I mean, that's got the, the line I do love when he turns to her and says, this is a thing of national importance. I've got half an hour to get it done. And I'm sure that there is a slight wink at the camera for that. But I mean, that's that's typical Clemens, isn't it? Because there is actually quite a humorous element to that episode. She nearly gets him killed about four times by sort of knocking rocks off, or then she upsets him when he's about to shoot Darren Nesbitt. It's quite an interesting mix in, in that episode. But like Gideon's Way that you guys were talking about last week, almost every episode has a fantastic guest star in it. We've got Darren Nesbitt in that one. Nobody can outact McGowan, really, but um, but they all give it a, a good go. And there's no... I don't remember a time of anybody being miscast. You could pick a load of other ITC shows where you think, well, they weren't so good in that role. That wasn't their best. But in Danger Man, everyone's spot on in their performances, I think. And when you get a real star like a Donald Pleasance in position of trust, I think it brings out that extra layer in, in McGowan, as it were. Yeah, uh, absolutely, because th- he's got somebody to act up against. I mean, Pleasance is superb in that episode. I totally agree with you. Yeah, that's a fantastic story. I think when we were chatting informally the other day, we all said that the great thing with that is Donald Pleasance is a three-dimensional character. He comes across as sort of old-school pompous at the beginning, by the end, he's actually almost heroic. And so it does show that if the script writers were on song, you can still get three-dimensional characters within a 25-minute format, which is quite a skill in itself, isn't it? When you look at the list of actors and actresses in these episodes, like Barbara Shelley was in um, View from the Villa as Gina Scarlatti. I thought she was fabulous in that. As Rick said, there's not a miscast person in any of these episodes, really. And you've also got some some cracking actors playing tiny parts. I'm thinking one I watched the other day, The Conspirators, which has got this wonderful location shooting. It's sort of this coastline backdrop. It's meant to be a Channel Island. I don't know where they filmed it. But that's got Alfred Burke as the sort of um, the gatekeeper. And he's only in a couple of scenes, really. So you have got some fine actors and actresses playing relatively small parts. Yeah, and going back to that location shooting on that, I think that was probably in North Wales somewhere. I've got the details for that. I can't remember in amongst all my millions of notes here. Because, of course, they did go to Port Merion more than once. Um, the, the landing in um, episode of Journey Ends Halfway, that, that's filmed there as well. Yeah, so, six episodes where they, they make use of Port Merion footage. A lot of other North Wales stuff as well. They go to Lake Vernwe, which doubles, I think, as a, as a Czech border post, I think, in one episode, the name of which escapes. Time to kill. Great. Well, I, knew, I knew you'd know, Jazz. You're always the man. For, for, for any fact when it comes to any ITC show but we should really give thanks to Douglas Twiddy who I think was the locations manager on those Half Hour Danger Men and actually found those locations Port, you know, Patrick McGoon didn't know of Port Marion at that point so this was all down to Mr Twiddy that that was a particular location chosen because it could double for Italy as it did from View for the Village it doubled as China as it did in one episode uh, so we really should give thanks to him for that because obviously without McGoon having gone to Port Marion in 59 he wouldn't have then returned there eight years later to make the prisoner so of all of us that love that ITC show as well, uh, we really should be thanking Douglas 
Twitty for finding those fantastic locations. And as you say, John Schlesinger filmed so much of that location stuff as well. And it shows because it's a love filmed really cinematically. Well, I mean, there are some, as you say, Rick, there are some fantastic locations. I mean, the sanctuary, uh, which is sort of set up in Scotland and has some fantastic scenes at the train station. The one we just mentioned, the conspirators, there's almost a Bond-esque one under the lake, which is dealing with sort of Nazi counterfeit notes. And uh, there are some brilliant, brilliant locations. Time to Kill is so much of it is of that episode is filmed on location. I know there's quite a bit of second unit and stuff, but as Rick rightly points out, so well directed by Schlesinger, I agree there is such a cinematic quality to them when they get out on location and you can see that. And I'm glad you mentioned the sanctuary there because I feel that's a great story, but I also think that's quite a risque and daring story for 1960 because it's all about the IRA and at the time the IRA troubles in Ireland weren't being particularly covered in the British press and you know everyone thinks of the troubles in the 70s awful as they were but you know this has been going on for a long long time and I think for an ITC show to make such a serious plot line there you know it's about getting guns to the IRA and what the IRA are going to do with them that's really quite out there for 1960s TV but also very out there for ITC compared to some of the other episodes. Well, I mean, look how gritty the teaser is. Uh, They blow up a railway line, don't they, at the very beginning. And uh, I can remember the first time watching that when they've knocked him out at the train station and they're going to hurl him under the express coming up from London to to the Highlands. And... uh, it's quite terrifying. Uh, you know, that was really quite dark. And yet in between, the, there is almost a, a, a slight bit of humour when he constantly is trying to keep the wife who's innocent in the room because he knows that if she goes out the room, he's dead. I, I think that's a wonderful episode. And I do think when they get out into the wilds, which they do in, in one of my favourites, the gallows tree, again, set up in Scotland, mm. where I thought Paul Rogers is brilliant in that. There really is a buck, Buccaness quality. You mentioned 39 steps earlier there are quite a few episodes that have got little elements of that in in it yeah i was going to say the gallows tree is a fabulous episode i love that episode it's so brilliant and of course they basically remade it in the hour series as as that's two of us sorry and as as you know rick was saying earlier when mcguin has a real star alongside him that's when you really see how talented an actor he was himself. Because as I say, the, the scenes he has with Paul Rogers in there or the scenes he has with Donald Pleasance, it almost allows him just to himself to go up to the next level, I think. Yeah, I think he probably reveled in that as well, having those type of people opposite him, especially in a short 25-minute TV production. You know, lots of those people, Donald Pleasance, were cinema actors, really. Are we going to say anything at all about whether there was a sort of danger man rules book? There there probably were certain things because how driven it was by McGowan. Yeah, I wonder if that's a sort of unwritten rule book that is probably said that when it comes to the scripts, do not put 
Patrick in a situation where he is going to have to be romantically involved with a lady or that he is going to pull a gun on someone. And it might just be as simple as that. I mean, we we haven't got any documentation, sadly. And like I say, with Ralph Smart being involved in two thirds of the episodes, it might be something that he, he and Ralph had sort of agreed on once he said no to that first script. I mean, you did send me the the script for the journey ends halfway, and they do have certain rules about the pronunciation on the front of that. Yes, I don't know whether you count that as a rule. Probably not, but um, that they do make it clear that they want Drake to sound mid Atlantic. Mid Atlantic, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which becomes less the case, of course, in the hour ones, doesn't it? Yeah, I was going to say he's. You're, you're right, and he's very much the sort of British secret agent in the hour-long series. Whereas in this one, he is yeah mid-Atlantic, and, and you're, you're supposing that he works for um, you know the American Secret Service with the opening titles. Of course, they superimpose the Capitol building, don't they, on the uh, on the street in the opening titles? But what <laughs> sort of ruins that is that he crosses the road, and then along goes a Morris Minor, which is probably the most British car you, you could ever imagine, um, and that kind of ruins that slightly for those that are eagle-eyed. But, yeah, I wonder if there is a rule book. I think that one of the things that I think always comes across, and it comes across in an episode that I like a lot, which is one of the early episodes, Joe Setter. McGowan, or John Drake, rather, always has to be on the, the moral side of, of things. He has to be on the side of what's right and what's moral. And I think that comes across in that episode. He's not coming across as the man who wants to womanise the lead actress. He's just coming across as the guy that really wants to help her get justice. And I like that episode because I think it's on the verge of being unrealistic. For those that are listening that don't know the episode very well, there's a, a blind lady is in the room when her brother gets murdered. And the only way they can catch the culprit is by her pretending she could see all along. So there's this uh, sequence where McGowan is talking through an earpiece to her to say, right, turn left now, sit down at the table, brush your hair, look in the mirror to try and fool the, uh, the culprit into thinking that she knew it was him all along. But there's a very much a moral code throughout that episode that I'm just helping her out because she is on the side of what's right and the bad guy's on the side of what's wrong. And that's who I am. I'm not trying to womanise. I'm not trying to get one over on anybody. I'm just on the moral side of right. And I think that comes across in practically every episode. I absolutely agree with that. And I mean, he does actually say at the end of the key, he says that he's actually sick and tired of doing other people's dirty work. Mm. That, that There are certain times in the series where he either refuses to do things or he makes a point of saying he's actually really uncomfortable being asked to do that. I think in Time to Kill that you mentioned earlier, Jazz, I'm sure he says at the beginning of that one, something along the lines of, I'm, I'm not assassinating someone for you. Yeah, and in the key, it's the wife who is, you know, betraying the secrets. But Drake knows that although the British agent is lying, he knows his wife is basically being used by another agent. So, you know, they're in effect, the British agent and his wife are both victims in that episode, which I think is, is quite an interesting little storyline. One of the things that all three of us, I think, agree on is that when the script was good, the 25-minute format is not a handicap. And and I think uh, a lot of people look at Danger Man and they think of the hour-long episodes, understandably, where you've obviously got more room for character development. You've got more room to perhaps add the icing on the cake. But actually, in these half-hour episodes, you've got some really taut storylines. And I do think there are advantages to that. I think there are times in the hour-long one where occasionally it lags a little bit. And you just don't get that here because there isn't time for it. 
I was just going to say that, and I agree with you there, because what it means is that you have to stick to the main plot. There is no sort of secondary subplot going on in this 25 minutes. It literally is what we have got to get over. Yeah, and I think that's to its credit, uh, rather than, you know, as, as a bad point, as Rodney said. There's very few episodes where I can think, you know, we could have strung that out a bit longer. And how many of those episodes would have been a lot poorer if they'd have tried to get the story across in 50 minutes? I think they work perfectly as that 25-minute, fast as you go. They're so fast-paced, even by modern standards, where, you know, everything has to be fast-paced these days. There's no room for character development on TV anymore, it seems. Even up to, to those standards of today, they're incredibly fast-paced. They're not dull. I've got three kids, one of which is 13, and he's just at the right age for ITC shows. And I've got on. We watched The Key and then The View from Neverloo. We watched two of them back-to-back. And he absolutely loved it. It wasn't too slow. It was just pitched exactly right. And I think you don't get that in the hours. You only get that in the 25-minute episodes. The hours has lots of greatness to it. I'm sure um, there'll be a podcast devoted to them at some point, Jazz, where we can wax lyrical about how great the hour-long episodes were. But the 25-minute episodes are just fantastic. I think also that there's a little bit more mystery about Drake, perhaps because you've only got half the time to tell the story each week. But also, we're not quite sure who his boss is he doesn't have a home so there is that nomadic feel to it whereas obviously he's got that sort of muse home in the in the hour-long ones and i quite like that extra mystery i I think it suits drake and actually i think it suits mcguin it does because like the character mcguin didn't want anybody to know his private life and i think that's exactly the same with john drake and that's what it makes him such a great character. You don't know what his family situation is, if he has one. You know, you don't know whether he's a, a you know, a Lothario like Jason King or, or, or Simon Temper or whatever. We don't know. And frankly, we don't care. I think you're so right there. I think the fact that he is a lone wolf, we don't know much about him at all. I think that adds a real depth to the character as well. You know, he, he will give a little bit away now and again. But other than that, you don't really know much about him at all. And I like that. I think that's a strong point in terms of the script writing and the whole series in general, personally. And I but, don't think the mid-Atlantic thing even has to be a weakness. I mean, it was often used uh, in a detrimental way by critics. But the fact is that he's sort of every man. He, he's, he's a global secret agent. And so it, it seems to me it makes perfect sense that he doesn't have a, a very English accent or a very American accent, that he sort of belongs everywhere and nowhere. Do you know what? When I watch it, I don't even sort of notice the sort of mid-Atlanticness when it is there. I kind of just think, well, that's how John Drake talks. And like you say, it's kind of everywhere and nowhere. So at the same time, I think it's incredibly clever. Um, I'm going back to Rick mentioning Joe Setter there, that episode. That was um, a rewrite as well. That was an Invisible Man story called Blind Justice. Um, I was going to talk about an episode called The Island, which is where two hitmen end up against Drake and a girl who sort of stows away on the plane. Her name's Bobby. Her father owns the airline. That's a little bit like Time to Kill in a way because Time to Kill, obviously, is Drake and a, and a woman again against the two brothers, one of which is Darren Nesbitt. But the two villains in that, Alan Cuthbertson is one of them, are really, really fabulous. I don't know if you guys have a... They're any... quite humorous as well, in a weird way. Um, yeah, that's Peter another... Stevens, I think, is the other one, isn't it? Yes. 
I, I think that's a, another episode which has quite a, a rather nice, slightly light comic touches to it because, of course, both uh, Drake and the girl and the two prisoners are both trying to convince this strange guy on the island. It's almost out of Treasure Island, isn't he? Yeah. And they're, both, they're all yeah, trying Michael to convince Whipper, him. Great performance. Yeah, well, they're all trying to convince him. No, we're the goodies. They're the baddies. I absolutely love that. It's Peter Stevens as Mr. Jones and Alan Cuthbertson as Mr. Wilson. And um, I love the way they just talk to each other as Mr. Wilson, Mr. Jones. <laughs> you couldn't get more, um, like you say, ITC villainish in some sort of ways. You know, it's a bit stereotypical, I suppose. But it's, it's one of the first times they ever did it. That's an example, I guess, of where Danger Man moves away from realism because, of course, Drake takes over flying the plane. So it crashes into the water and seconds later they're sort of paddling out or whatever. But that doesn't matter. I think that's one of the charms of the show, that, yes, there are realistic elements, but this is not meant to be an example of realism. I think Rick made the point of that earlier. Uh, That's not the intention here. Yeah, it's escapism bordering on realism. I love the fact that you mentioned those two characters, Jazz, because I, I'm sure everyone's familiar with the Bond film Diamonds Are Forever, which came, you know, what, 12 years after that? And there's two characters in that were sort of, uh, you know, very much, hello, Mr. Such-and-Such, I can't remember their names now, but the two, two sort of camp villains in that. And I do wonder whether they'd maybe seen that episode of Danger Man at uh, the island when the writers of Diamonds Are Forever came up with, the, with those particular characters. I wonder whether the writers on most Bond films weren't watching half of what's going on with Danger Man, to be honest. I mean, like, we talked about Time to Kill, and, and he's got a gun that's hidden in a loaf of bread. It all screws together a bit like the man from The Golden Gun. I know that, obviously, Fleming had written the book, but it hadn't been made on screen. And I do think the episode I mentioned earlier, Under the Lake, there are quite a few of those sort of Bond-esque episodes. And you can imagine that perhaps the filmmakers might have looked back on a few of those Danger Man episodes and thought, oh, I rather like that idea, or I like that setting by the lake and the mountain and, and using the sort of, it's got the sort of lift sort of thing, hasn't it? Cable that car, takes, yeah. Yeah, the cable car, sorry, that takes them up. And you think at that point that the sort of, the baddie who isn't really the baddie is going to push him out. There are quite sort of Bond-type feel to that episode, isn't there? You can absolutely see why McGowan was was touted as being a Bond and was approached. As we know, he turned it down twice, but uh, you can absolutely see why they would have looked at him in his role as John Drake and said, this is the man we want to be Bond. Yeah, it would have been a very different thing if they had got him. To be honest, I'm glad they didn't, because what he did afterwards, we would have never have got. I do think Danger Man half hour, Danger Man, one hour, and a prisoner are all very time-specific pieces. I mean, Danger Man, half hour, wouldn't, I don't think, have worked in 1969. I mean, it's a world away from, like, the ubiquitous Mr. Lovegrove, isn't it, of sort of 65 vintage or whatever, where you have certainly got a sort of swinging London, slightly psychedelic, slightly sort of drug-orientated feel to that episode. There's nothing like that in the original series. I just wanted to quickly talk about Drake's bosses, as in Hardy, who was played by Richard Wattis, and Colonel Keller, who was played by Lionel Merton. I know we mentioned that he didn't really have a main boss as such, but there were a couple of episodes where these characters did turn up. Wattis obviously played Hardy in the one hours on on an occasion or two, and so there's that link there. But he's... uh, I suppose he represents the British establishment, doesn't he? And Keller represents the American establishment. 
Yeah, there's one episode, you know the series better than I do, but there's an episode where it begins with he's been dragged over to deal with some case and his boss makes him breakfast. Do you remember that episode? Yeah, that's, uh, so that, that's, him, that's Hardy. Yeah, and makes him in a sort of, his sort of egg and bacon, etc. And actually, he's got quite a dry wit as a boss, hasn't he? There's a slightly sort of sarcastic feel to him. At the same time, he's making him breakfast as if you're sort of my, my little son that I'm about to pack off to school. Yeah, I think Hardy definitely sees Drake as being beneath him. But isn't that another great thing about Drake's character that we don't really have any idea about his background? As in, did he go to Eton? Did he go to the local comprehensive? It, it almost, again, um, echoing what Rick said earlier, it sort of doesn't matter. And I love the fact that he doesn't necessarily come from a, a privileged background. It, it, again, it, it, it just adds more to the mystery of it, I think. I have no problem with the, the, those scenes involving Hardy and so on. I think they're, they're quite nice. But I on, almost think that we could have probably done without those because I think that is a bit of an intrusion into who Drake is, what does he do, who does he work for. I don't think we need to know any of that. We just need him to be, I hate this phrase, but a superhero in, in a sense. We don't need to know whether he's, he's battling the bureaucracy or whatever. I, I really don't think it's that kind of show. It's not Callan or, 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 or whatever, you know, where he's up against the powers that be. I don't think that's who we need Drake to be at this point. Yeah, no, I, I agree totally. I think, once again, it less is more. And without the bosses, it, it just adds a little bit more mystery. Is he working for CIA? Is he working for NATO? He might be working for different people, different weeks. Uh, I, I don't think the bosses are needed, particularly with that 25-minute format. Yeah, that episode you mentioned was Dead Man Walks, wasn't it, where he goes and makes him his breakfast? I've remembered it now. Name, date and place. Can I put in a, a very, very brief mention for that? Sure. I mean, I, I do love that episode. And it's uh, obviously it, it's to do with the fact that there is this company, Cosmopolitan Services, they call them. Murder you Incorporated, name, isn't it, really? Yeah. You name it, we supply it. And yet it's all coming out of a very respectable London. So you've got this guy who's about to go off with his wife to watch some horse racing. And uh, the lady who comes around to Drake's flat is a very sort of upmarket lady. And then the, there's a young woman who attempts to assassinate him in Paris. And it's this wonderful veneer of respectability. I, I absolutely love that episode because it is quite dark and chilling. And it makes you realise how easy it is, if you've got some money, to have someone bumped off. Yeah, I think that's a great story, actually, personally. And I like the fact that it's a female assassin, not a, yeah. uh, a stereotypical male assassin, to be honest. Danger Man was broadcast in 1960, started September 1960 on ITV. Something that's probably forgotten about is that Actually, in the US, it was networked on CBS between April and September 1961. And I know that people are always saying, oh, you know, ITC shows are never, they didn't do well in America. There's a, there's a kind of urban myth about them because um, lots of them actually were uh, networked. I admit they didn't run for their whole run, but I was, again, looking at some stuff today and I was thinking, like, where does this urban myth come from? Because Okay, so the Baron ran for 14 episodes on ABC in primetime at 10 o'clock. Danger Man was on CBS. When it became Secret Agent, it was also on CBS. The Persuaders was on ABC. 
uh, Man in a Suitcase was on ABC. So and I think Man in a Suitcase, for example, was up against Star Trek. Um, so actually, it, it's not always easy to to sort of qualify how popular these programs were, because in the modern day era, you'd have recorded one and watched the other or watched it on catch up TV or whatever. In those days, you didn't have the option to do that. And if you put a, a brand new series up against a really popular cult show, American show, it, it, it's quite hard, isn't it? Well, I think that's the thing with, like you say, Man in a Suitcase, but also to persuade us around against Mission Impossible. I wanted to debunk that myth, actually, and say that a lot of ITC shows were shown on networks in America and a lot at prime time. We could debunk a second myth at the same time, and that is that this argument that Lou Grade was Americanizing British TV. If I ask my French friends, for example, I mean, you've got your favorite show, The Persuaders, is enormous still in France. Um, Danger Man is very popular in France, as is The Saint. And none of them see the, see the shows as being at all Americanized. They think it's very, very English. So I, I think it, it's something that the TV critics in England had a real bugbear about. And I don't think anyone else saw that at all. I think most people just enjoyed it. I think Rick used the word earlier as sort of slightly escapist fun stuff. Yeah, I completely agree with both of you. I think that I think that is a bit of an urban myth, and you don't see to call them punters. I don't I don't see the punters saying that at all. And you're absolutely right. If you speak to people from from overseas, especially in Europe, or in, and indeed in Australia as well, where these shows are very popular, just obviously worked on all the box sets for a lot of these shows for the Australian market. They don't see it as at all Americanized, and I don't I don't see ITC shows as that way at all. Even the even even the ones that came later, you know, Handlin Hopkirk deceased. You could never more British show really. I know they they kind of the scripts sometimes were toned down because the Americans maybe it was felt wouldn't understand it. But I, I, I completely agree with what you said. Well, I mean, I threw out a sort of quote to the two of you a couple of days ago from Arthur Marwick, this sort of social historian. He said what a lot of people in Britain were complaining about being Americanization was actually modernization. And what I think we're talking about this evening is the fact that Danger Man was offering something contemporary and really crisp and modern. That's what it was doing. Right, and, and Jazz said at the beginning that you know this broke the mold in in some ways. That the British audience was used to Robin Hood, Sir Lancelot, but maybe Interpol calling fifty nine sixty kind of was moving into a different direction. But Danger Man, very much I think, was the first one that really gave the audience something different. You talked earlier on about Lou Grade and, and, and being he loved variety, but he wanted a night on ITV to be a variety show. So he wanted a, a bit of comedy. He wanted something a bit more highbrow. He wanted something gritty. And Danger Man gave you that for the first time, really, gave you this escapist drama, which at the same time was real drama. It wasn't a play of the week. It was a character almost out of the 1930s serials, you know, a, a superhero secret agent, but darker than that. And I think this was the first show to really do that. And I mean, let's remember, it's escapism, but at the same time, quite a few of the episodes deal with quite serious themes. So the, the one we were talking about earlier with Donald Pleasant's position of trust, that begins with this photograph of a girl who's only, I think, meant to be about 20 and looks 50 because she's been on heroin. And uh, that's almost a raison d'etre for why he goes out there, because he wants to see what he can do to break up this whole opium grower, moving to smugglers, going on to the mafia. So it, it didn't stop them from dealing with quite a few themes that, that were serious ones. 
I totally agree with you there, Rodney. I think that some of these scripts were fantastic in terms of going to places that no other show might go at the time. Like I mentioned, The Sanctuary. And Well, the journey ends halfway. Um, Sam Denham, who's a big ITC fan, pointed me in the direction the other week of the fact that The Journey Ends Halfway is possibly based on this Second World War doctor in France, a real person who had pretended he had an escape route all the way to Argentina. And lots of, uh, lots of refugees, lots of Jewish people paid him a fortune. And he said he had to inoculate them against um, sort of illness. And basically what he was doing was he was killing them and dumping their bodies in the River Seine. And so you can sort of see the links between that and the journey ends halfway. You can't really get much more hardcore as a subject than sort of genocide by a doctor. We did mention the sort of lack of gadgets in this right at the start. I mean, there are a few gadgets that he does use. I mean, I think there's a facsimile machine in one, which is not really his gadget, but he uses it. And there's um, there's some CCTV and a two-way radio thing. But generally, this show's definitely not gadget, not driven, but there's not a heavy use of gadgets, is there? Not anywhere near as much as there is in the hour shows. And again, I think that's because it's so tightly wound due to the format of 25 minutes that there almost isn't time for that. That would be because you need to see him building it. You need to see what was going on and why he's doing that. That's 10% of the episode gone and there just wasn't time for that. Do you think that's also a a case of it being pre rather than post-bond as well? Yes, and I also think that probably like um, they did it once in Time to Kill, say where he had the gun and the loaf of bread and he had to build it all. And like you say, that's probably, I don't know, a tenth of the episode time and they don't really need to do that. And especially as he's not going to use guns. The gadgets, like I said, uh, they tend to be not his gadgets. They're gadgets that are facsimile machines, not really a gadget as such, I suppose. I suppose it's just... uh, technology it's it's modernization as you were saying earlier isn't it Rodney I mean I think it's one of those interesting things does one see the gadgets that appear more and more in the hour uh, shows as a welcome addition or are they a bit of a time filler sometimes as well I, I just I do love this taut 25 minutes as you said there's no room for subplot there's no room for any sort of superfluous scenes at all I've got in my hand here a German Danger Man paperback that I was looking at earlier. It's actually credited to Ralph Smart, of all things. So it's not a TV tie-in where they get someone like Robert Mayle to adapt scripts. Now, it's all in German, but I think it is a couple of scripts looking at it. There are names in the in the German that are obviously the same, like there's Scarlotti in there and it was a Mr. Finch you said earlier. So that's a nice little oddity because I was going to mention the tie-in sort of merchandise because one thing that we did, we, I don't think we did even say anything about it with Gideon's Way. No, there probably but, um, isn't a huge amount of merchandise though with Gideon's Way, was there? I mean, no, uh, but I in... mean, with the swashbucklers being predominantly aimed uh, a younger audience, we should say there were, I, you know, ITC did commission things like William Tell jigsaws and Robin Hood little bits of merchandise and that. And there were some interesting bits and pieces relating to Danger Man, especially considering that Ralph Smart was hoping to make this a more adult show. I think it also did, must have appealed to younger viewers because there's the board game, which is different from the hour long board game tie in. There's the paperback, it's an American paperback target for tonight which is 
I suppose, aimed at a more adult audience, but there's a US comic. So this is kind of where we get the start of this spy toy related and merchandise spin-off really beginning to happen as well. So Danger Man is, is quite important in that role, I think, as well. That builds throughout the hour shows as well. With, with, with as you say, there's a second game, jigsaw puzzles, more novelizations in in various languages, and and yeah, it hadn't really happened up until this point with with an adult show. And also, as we know, boys never really grow up. So boys and their toys, you know, I would still happily collect a Danger Man car with figurine in it, etc. Now, like I still collect all that sort of nonsense. <laughs> we all to still be do, don't we? <laughs> yeah. So any any other episodes that you guys want to sort of mention or any um any writers or any directors? I mean, we haven't mentioned any of the directors really as such. I suppose we did mention Peter Graham Scott briefly, but Charles Friend directed 10 episodes, uh Michael Truman directed 5, Terry Bishop 4, Seth Holt 3, Ralph Smart, there he is, writing 26 episodes, but he also directs two. And there's a couple of others who come in and do sort of single episodes, including Patrick McGoohan, Clive Donner, Pennington Richards, Anthony Bushell and Julian Ames. I, I wonder if there's anything that you guys wanted to add about them. I just think, I mean, I think one of the, the stamps of quality that this show has is that you don't really notice who the writer or the director is we know that there are some shows where you think ah that was peter duffel i can tell when peter duffel has directed a man in a suitcase because it's very different from the other directors here i can't think off the top of my head of any scripts that seem particularly weak i think some of the plots are too complicated so the 25 minutes doesn't quite work but uh, I just think the overall standard of the directing and the script writing was so good that you don't start thinking, ah, that's a Ian Stewart Black episode. Or I don't know whether the two of you would agree with that. I do completely agree. And I'm glad that Jazz mentioned Peter Graham Scott at the beginning because I think he's the perfect Danger Man director. I mean, he himself would always give that quote that always amuses me. That I was chosen because I was quick and I was cheap. But he was quick. He could work with that quick turnaround, but yet not let the quality dip. And I think that's true of all the directors. I think they were all chosen. Michael Truman's a great example. They could work quickly, under pressure. They had a background in, in film, so they knew how to direct something cinematically. They could work quickly under pressure as well, but without letting the quality flag. And I think that's really to the, all of their credits, really, that, as you said, Rodney, you're quite correct. We don't know who the director is from one episode to the next because they all almost worked in that uniform way. We work in film, so we know what we're doing. Let us do it quickly and do it the way we want to do it. And it all comes across as being beautifully lit, beautifully made. And in terms of the writers, it's remarkable that one doesn't notice that it's a Brian Clemens script because, you know, I'm sure Jazz will agree with me later on. You can always tell on various series that it's a Brian Clemens script. And here, I think he holds himself back a little bit. There isn't that element of going slightly overboard or creating caricatures. I, I think he holds himself back in a bit, uh, much to his credit, so that his scripts don't stand out as being I, different. I was going to say to that, I don't think Ralph Smart would have let him, to be honest. When you look at how much control Ralph had over this show, I don't think he would have allowed... Uh, Brian or any other writer come to that to sort of stray too much or too far away from what we've talked about earlier one thing about the episodes that we haven't mentioned is they only they had five days to make an episode which when you think about it is incredible so they literally went to work on a Monday and the end of the Friday that was it they made the episode that week 
Yeah, I mean, that just doubles my admiration for it because you don't watch them and think that was cobbled together in five days, do you? No. Not at all. I mean, you look at the sets as well. I mean, the, the, the great work by the art department putting it all together. I know we joke about, you know, it's always the studio back lot or the front of the studio doubles as the embassy in Caracas or whatever. But as a viewer, we, un- we only know that because we know the minutiae of everything. But just as a viewer watching these episodes, you could be in Bogota or wherever one week to the next because everything just looks so great. There's not a, I don't remember a, a Danger Man half hour where I'm thinking, oh, that just set looks shoddy, doesn't it? They're clearly not, you know, where the palm trees are, <laughs> even though it's the same palm tree. You don't notice that when you're just watching it as a, as a casual viewer, I don't think. And that, I think that's to the credit of everybody that worked on those shows. I think whether directors were very clever is when you look at some of the sets and I've been looking at The Journey Ends halfway first a little project of mine and quite often that the sets are sort of hinted at so you foreground you know the two main characters chatting away um, sort of telling part of a story and in the background there might be a Chinese vase and a little screen and that's actually enough with a little bit of oriental type music to convince us that we're in China you don't need any more than that you did say earlier that less is more And that's a perfect example. But some of the sets were incredibly beautiful and really well made. I mean, in Josetta, right at the end, where Drake's convinced the guy, the killer, that she can see. Well, when they sort of set that scene up that they're going to capture him towards the last few minutes, if you look at that set, it's a beautiful, beautiful house that they're in. And he's looking out the window looking into the garden and he can see the assassin come in and the assassins sort of sneaking through the bushes and stuff. That's so well done. And as you said, the directors made those sets work brilliantly. And I think there are times when one thinks one is on location and and we're still in the studio. So when they do go across the water in the journey ends halfway, I know from reading the script that you sent me, that was all done in the studio. And yet you'd swear when you watched it that they were at some estuary going across in a boat. So I think that they were really very inventive, those set designers as well. I think lots of the sets were really well done as well. I mean, like if he's staying in some very drab hotel, you know, it is minimalist to say the least, but it's very well done. I just think in all departments, they really ticked all the boxes with like A stars in this, whether it be the music, whether it be the acting, whether it be the directing, whether it be the lighting. There's not one single thing I can think of in the entire show that I think, oh, that's a bit weak. It sets the benchmark for everything so high, and I think that very few ITC shows come up to that benchmark. I'm not saying that in a negative way to those shows. I just think they didn't have McGowan being that constant driving force that Bookwork, Peter Graham Scott, Angela Brown that Rick mentioned earlier, they all say that this was McGowan's driving force he wanted to do everything and get it right and i think it real testament it shows and there are still there's still room for a little wink at the camera as well which i do like i mean i i love the fact that he says in almost every episode doesn't he i'm obliged and it becomes his sort of one of his little sort of standard phrases. And even some of the darker episodes, there is still room 
offer, as I say, that dry sense of humour of his in The Journey Ends Halfway. They don't call it China in the actual episode, but it's clearly meant to be China. And you can't get anywhere without papers. And he has wonderful sort of almost deadpan conversations with people about, well, why do you need to see my papers? Oh, it's very important, Mr. Drake. Does everyone have papers? Yes, Mr. Drake. Well, if they do, why are you asking me for mine? You know, and all of this. And he can do that as well. Okay, so it's been a lovely opportunity to talk about this half-hour series of Danger Man. Rick, I really want to thank you for coming on board and sharing your thoughts and opinions with us. And I wonder if we could just get a final overview on the show from you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, Thank you very much for inviting me on. We could have talked for hours more, of course. I just want to impress upon anyone listening who hasn't really watched Danger Man, and I come across as primarily someone who, who first saw The Prisoner and came to Danger Man later. I come across lots of people who are fans of The Prisoner who haven't seen Danger Man, and I would implore people to give it a go, not only just because Patrick McGowan's in it, and he is superb in it, but because they are really great, tight, excellent, fast-paced, 25 minutes worth of escapism drama, the quality of which is is superb. It's right up there for me with the very best of TV shows, let alone ITC shows. I would really ask anyone that hasn't given them a go to watch them. And if you have watched them and maybe haven't watched them for a while, give them another go because there's nothing better than watching something familiar but with fresh eyes of, of hindsight and so on. I really, really enjoy every episode of Danger Man, whether it's half hour or hours. But I think the half hours are so underrated. I really do think people can give them another chance if they haven't really delved into them too deeply. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk about them. Pleasure. Thanks for joining us. And Rodney? I second everything Rick said and maybe just add the fact that we're interested in landmark series and it is the half hour rather than the hour, which is the landmark series for Danger Man. This is pre-Saint. This is pre-Avengers. It's pre-Bond. This is where the sort of the 60s starts. You quite rightly said it's not singing 60s, but in many ways, Danger Man was the start of something new. And that makes it exciting in itself. And I personally think I'm so used to hour-long shows, there's a real novelty about being told a story in 25 minutes. I want to say thanks to you again, Rodney, for again being my co-host on this. It's been such a pleasure to be able to share almost two hours of your time and Rick's time just nattering, really, about what we think is great about Danger Man. I just want to say thank you to everyone who has listened to the first podcast as well and for all the comments that are coming in. It's really great to get your feedback. We really, really appreciate it. Again, if you can let us know what you think is good about this episode, what you liked, what you didn't like, we're all ears because, like I said before, this is new to us. We've only done one. This is our second go at it. We're still learning, but I'm so thrilled by the feedback you've been giving us. It seems that you've been wanting to hear people talking about ITC shows in some sort of depth for a long time. I'm just sorry we didn't do it earlier. Coming up next in episode three, we're going to do Man in a Suitcase. Again, Rodney will be joining me for that. Well, Rodney's going to be joining me for all of them because he's my co-host. In episode four, we're going to do The Persuaders. Episode five, The Zoo Gang. So I hope that gives you all something to look forward to. So you just don't think, oh, all they're doing at the moment is looking at black and white shows because obviously we're going to cover all the ITC shows and we're going to sometimes do specials, talk about novelizations or talk about film locations or tie-in merchandise. Thanks again for listening and we'll hear from you hopefully soon. And... It's bye from me.
Bye from me. And goodbye from me. You have been listening to episode two, Danger Man, of the ITC Entertain the World podcast, hosted by Jazz Wiseman, with Rodney Marshall and Rick Davey. This podcast was made on location and edited and produced by Jazz Wiseman. It was a bitter and twisted limited production for the morning after.